Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Rachel, you have such incredible experience. You've seen things from the client seat when you were at The Gap. You've seen things from your perch at Micmac, working with so many different brands. You know how you have those kinds of clients and partners that make you better? And some you have that just kind of suck the life out of you? Oh, yes. You're speaking about my day. Yeah, you know, it's just that 90-10 rule where 90% of your time is focused on 10% of your clients. It's about those people that ask all of the difficult and fabulous questions that push you to think further and develop you more and raise the bar. Yeah. I mean, your partners are always teaching you a thing or two. You may have to question what you're bringing to the table, but that's the beauty of balance of knowing when you're teaching and knowing when you're learning and always ensuring that you're doing both, even if it's not at the exact same time, you know, growth is never linear. When I think about partners today that push my boundaries It's actually even sometimes the clients that we've lost because they were the ones that were not satisfied with maybe how we service them or what our products capabilities were. And I often find that the hardest conversations are the ones that were most transformative for us. That's a great point. I do feel like those post-loss conversations are the ones where you may as well open everything up and just say however you feel. And it's finally, you're getting the information that you wish you had before you went into that pitch in the first place. But Howard Friedman is one of those people who has made me better at my job over the past decade. One of those clients that asked all the right questions, thankfully didn't fire me. And I did win the pitch deck. (laughs) But when we first met, I was at 360i and we had just won a lot of business from Kraft. And someone had suggested that we meet because he was the head of cheese and dairy at the time at Kraft. And you mean the big cheese? The big cheese. It never gets old. And it was just me and him in the room. And he scared the crap out of me, peppered me with a zillion questions, challenging everything that came out of my mouth. And by the end of the meeting, I realized that he wasn't doing it to intimidate me, regardless of the fact that I was intimidated, probably because I had a little bit of imposter syndrome going on, but he just wanted to learn. And he had an insatiable intellectual curiosity. And that is how a longstanding friendship has blossomed. I don't know how you were ever scared of Howard. 
He is an angel. Now I feel like he's become this leadership guru in my life. And to quote him before we get into the episode, if you're not going to get fired from making a decision, then delegate it to someone else on your team. Howard, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, when you offer it, I couldn't resist. You are also one of my favorite people. So this should be a lot of fun. Catherine and Adam might get a little jealous by this, but I think it's going to spice up both of our marriages. I'm feeling good about it. I'm feeling good. Yeah, that'll work. Rachel, we're happy to have you too. Thanks. I guess I'm the third wheel. (laughs) I'll be the third wheel by the time this whole thing's over. So all good. So Howard, you and I know each other more than a decade. Gosh, (laughs) it's been two and a half years since you took the helm at Post Consumer Brands after many, many years at Kraft. Being in the CEO seat is very different from any other type of job. That said, you've had some extremely senior jobs at Kraft. What's different being in that hot seat versus those I other senior roles? I overstate my background slightly, but I appreciate it. I had been a division president at Kraft for the better part of three or four years before I moved. Wait, 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 wait. What division was it? It was actually the meat and cheese division. There's an obvious joke there, which I'll let you tell. No, no, no. You do it. It's fun. Yeah. You know, I used to have to uh, take 30 minutes between meetings when we were discussing meat versus cheese because you're not supposed to mix the two. When I got the job, my mom immediately said, you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, what's the rabbi going to say about about you working in meat and cheese and you're now responsible for selling Oscar Mayer bacon? But we adapt and overcome and she's forgiven me since. I wasn't even going on the kosher joke. I remember the first time I met you, I flew to Chicago and uh, I came home and I'm like, I said, I had a very intimidating meeting with the senior vice president of cheese and dairy at Kraft. And my husband said, you met with the head cheese? And I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, it is funny. To me, that was the funniest that you were the head cheese. That's all. Fair enough. I was the big cheese at one point. That's true. When I transitioned to post, uh, obviously, I, I had been in one company for a very long time, and there was sort of a discreet way of doing things. I have a certain style about me where I, I tell people I'm always sure, but I'm not always right. When I would speak in my previous experience, you have this reservoir of goodwill, and people always knew he didn't literally mean we needed to go do something. Well, when I, when I became the CEO at post-consumer brands, it surprised me a little bit that people literally thought I meant I should be, they should be going to do things even when they weren't necessarily the clearest. So I I had to learn to modify my, my style a little bit by asking more open-ended questions than giving more definitive statements. I, I think the other thing is, is that you just don't have any peers, right? There are days when you come home from work, it's been a bad day. You're sure that you that I didn't do something right, or that I wish I could take words or phrases back that I had used in a meeting. There's really no one to talk to about it. And it becomes a test of human resiliency. You know, you sort of got to get over it. I have a mentor whom you know, who's slightly more intimidating than I am. When he promoted me to president, told me that you got to find your own source of comfort when you think you've made a mistake or get a dog, because no one's going to tell you you made a mistake and no one's going to stroke your ego to make you feel better about it. And then the last thing is the opportunity to make decisions and do things that I think are right quickly. When you're a number two, no matter how senior you are, when you're not in charge, there's a lot more consensus building that has to happen sort of at the executive ranks because everybody has to be willing to go along, right? If one division does something, all the divisions need to do it. In this case, especially as you think about COVID and all of the twists and turns that have happened over the last year. You know, the ability to navigate the winds, make a decision that I think is best for our company, and then just move on. It's been fairly liberating, actually. Howard, as a solo founder, I really empathize with the statement you just made around uh, the loneliness being at the top. Do you have an executive coach? It sounds like you have a mentor, but 
What about a coach? I do have a coach and I've had one for probably at least the last seven or eight years. Not the same one because then you're just renting a friend. Mm -hmm. I do have a coach and I've had varying people over different stages of my career. And I'm very fortunate because the coach that I have right now is quite good at giving me a correction of errors when, (laughs) when I'm talking to her. And I get sort of the very disapproving, oh, Howard response. I'm like, I know, I know I should, but it's, it is super helpful to just have a third party listening to what you're saying. Yeah. I love that your coach is a woman. We hope you're enjoying our interview with my good friend, the big cheese himself, Howard Friedman. More to come. And we're looking forward to hearing his favorite cereal and the bravest thing he's ever done. But first, we want to thank you for supporting our podcast, Brave Commerce. My personal favorite is Raisin Bran. Make sure to subscribe on an Apple or follow us on Spotify. Leave us a rating because the more positive ratings and comments we get, the more amazing guests and events we can roll out. And guess what, guys? We're number two in Belgium. Make us number one. <laughs> I personally, I'm more of a Oreo O's kind of a person, but it, it really is how the mood strikes me. Maybe a little honey bunches of oats also. We've got some big things coming up, so stay tuned. Obviously, the show is called Brave Commerce, so we want to get into the, the details and in the weeds with you around e-com. Sarah and I spend a lot of time working in your category and pre-pandemic, not a whole lot of revenue coming from e-com and fast forward to the week of March 9th, 2020, that fundamentally changed. Sure. So you're at post, the pandemic happens. How have you been able to upskill your own individual leadership when it comes to e-com? You're right. So March, 2020 came and the, gee, there's this thing called e-com and it's kind of here, but it's not really here, but it's really here. And we need to be sure what we're doing. The world stopped overthinking it and sort of decided that we were all going to need to move forward. And I don't think Post was any different. So we did very little business in e-commerce. And in fact, the budgets were done largely having individual brand managers who held the budget deciding what the e-commerce team could run. And, you know, I was saying to you before, if you've met Sarah, she's not shy about telling me where I'm completely off base and need to figure out a different way. And I've been fortunate over a decade to have friends like her and others who were always willing to humor me and push me in the directions I needed to give me things to read. I, you know, I think within days of Sarah taking the job, I got a deck on, and this is pre-March, I think, of here's how the world is changing. I I have friends across the industry. The the truth is the first thing I did was read a lot. And that's sort of the intellectual side of e-commerce, right? I can learn about what people are doing and I can understand the case for change. And then frankly, the second thing we did was we just jumped in. And so I I had a small team. I took the budgets away from the brand managers and I told the small team that I wanted them to figure out how to break the budget in e-commerce. We set out parameters to say, here's what you can spend in terms of acquisition costs. Here's what you can spend in terms of profitability. Go play. We'll give you enough money that we think it's a sizable enough investment. It was like a million dollars a month. If you can spend that responsibly, keep going. And if you can't, you need to stop. Frankly, just the act of doing, we, we made lots of mistakes, but the simple act of doing, suddenly your mistakes are benchmarked against the last mistake you made as opposed to what you'd hoped would happen. So we, we've been able to make quite a bit of progress. We brought in a new team. I hired a, a general manager in charge of e-commerce. So now treat it like a business and not like a class of trade. I have high hopes for the business of e-commerce for us, but also, frankly, I don't really think we had a choice. I think it was an existential threat longer term. If we didn't get in, the algorithm will forget you. Did you see that episode of Seinfeld? Now, now I'm dating 
Rachel might not have ever seen that episode. I watched every episode of Seinfeld. Okay. I'm sorry. My bad. My bad. I'm sorry. It was on reruns. (laughs) (laughs) It was in syndication at 11 o'clock at night. But there was an episode where anytime something bad happened when George, I think he was working for the Yankees, he he would just like hide under the desk Mm -hmm. and he would just like go take a nap. I I do believe that you're, you're making it seem like there was no choice. You know, you kind of just had to do, but there were plenty of companies that were just paralyzed by fear. Sure. Completely paralyzed by fear. And so the fact that not just you came to the table, but you did throw money at the opportunity and say, okay, let's go figure this out, but not so much, not for up to hang yourself, if you will. Sarah, I I think one of the challenges that I have found in in my career is we as an industry tend to hire very smart people across every discipline. It's not just marketing or sales or manufacturing. The problem with very smart people is that over time, they are convinced that they need to be right. And the problem with being right in a rapidly evolving environment is you're never right. You're mostly right. You're directionally right. You're within a solution set, but you're not right. And when very smart people crave certainty, the opportunity for risk goes away because you just take all of the time to be certain. And by the time that you are, it's gone. I have never, well, I do actually seek to be right, mostly in arguments. I'm the youngest child and I like to win a good debate, but I've never wanted to be right in a business setting, I wanted to be 80% right 100% of the time, not 100% right ever. My view of it was the worst thing that was going to happen was we were going to waste you know, a couple of million dollars, right? You spend a million dollars and you find out. And I realize it's not a small sum of money, but in our P&L, we're not going under because of it. We're not going to, and you know, our budgets have evolved since. But I knew that the worst thing that was going to happen was we would waste two. The first month we would do it and say, wow, that was really bad. The second month, we'd come back and do it again with a correction of error and go, wow, that was also really bad. And we would then start to make corrections of errors. I think when people try to be right, they become slow. And I think that that's where I was fortunate that I didn't, I didn't need that to be the case. You know, and I had a team that for whatever reason bought what I was selling that I didn't need them to be right, that they were allowed to go and make mistakes. I feel like you're getting at something that's speaking to the culture that maybe that's at post or you're trying to build. Because you're using the word mistake a lot. Yeah. I'm curious, like from an employee incentive, how you're measuring success. I do use the word mistake a lot. I use the correction of errors a lot. I will tell you, I had a, I had a CEO once who used to say he wanted to encourage original mistakes, right? Original mistakes are welcome all the time. Repetitive mistakes, that's a different issue. And that is what I am trying to build. I would not say that it is our, the culture of PCB, but we're, that's where we're going. That the ability to act requires a certain level of confidence that you're making the right decision and a certain amount of recklessness that if you've made a mistake, you can correct it. And that is what we're trying to move towards because I just don't see the world as black and white. I sell cereal, right? I sell grape nuts, which obviously we can talk about the great national scandal of 2021 where the grape nuts shortage, but I sell grape nuts, honeycomb, fruity pebbles, honey bunches of oats. I'm not diffusing bombs. I'm not performing brain surgery. The worst thing that happens is we go home and say, well, that was a mistake. No one's going to die in our world. Thank God. That all being said, and appreciate the context. And by the way, knowing that I am nowhere in line to qualify for the vaccine reminds me of how unimportant our jobs are. It is a nice sobering element just to remember, you know, we, we are not finding a vaccine for a national pandemic or anything like that. Sure. But, but what you're talking about in terms of both being right and being wrong, mm-hmm. there is definitely a reputation that CPG has for being slow 
and for not being open to change. So even just what you're saying doesn't seem to like that actually does fly in the face of traditional CPG that has operated the same way with the same brick and mortar environment and the same negotiations with the same reps sure. for a very long period of time. Yeah. Like, how do you get the whole company kind of thinking like you want to give the e-com team a million bucks a month to play, if you will. That's one thing. But how do you change the mindset of supply chain? How do you change the mindset of it's everywhere? It's like electricity. Yeah. I have an expression that I have used since I've come to post frequently. The entire self-help industry demonstrates that self-help doesn't work. We're talking about coaches, whether it's in in leadership or it's in personal training or it's in dieting. You need a, a disinterested third party to push you because left to our own device, we would all rather stay where we are. And this makes me a not a very inspiring person to work for, I fully concede. My thesis is if the pain of staying the same exceeds the pain of change, people will change. They just need to know what does change look like and they need permission to make the mistakes that they're afraid of making or to achieve the benefits of the successes that they have. One of the things I spend a lot of time in the beginning on is making the case for change. I did a hundred day walk through the company and I turned back and I said, this is what you told me you wanted to be different about our company. This isn't what I want. This is what you said you want. And if that's what you want, I'm going to show you how. We then have a structure, right? We do, we have key performance indicators. We have goal cascades. Every goal that the company has starts with me and comes all the way down through the organization. There's a whole lot of hilarity that goes on of what's a goal and what's not. But within those goals, part of the goal is the change agenda. We create an incentive for people to understand that by doing three test and learns, you know, by doing two new things in e-commerce, by building out a capability that we don't have today, DE&I. Choose what you want. What gets measured gets done. And the way that it gets done is it starts on my goals because everybody's quite clear that I'd like to hit my goals and I can't hit any of them if the organization doesn't hit theirs. So we're all kind of in it together, which I think helps create that case. When it comes to goal setting, sure, it seems like you have a lot of frameworks and philosophies. And one thing about your background that's pretty unique compared to other executives is that you also served in the U.S. Army, which is incredible. What lessons do you have from the army that you take into corporate leadership? Yeah, well, it, it's funny. I view my military service as an incredible gift that was given to me. You know, the army helped pay for my college, helped form me a little bit as a leader. You know, but there were three things I learned. Number one is a well-informed team that understands what the goal is and understands what needs to be done, not necessarily exactly how it needs to be done, is far more effective than a team that is being given explicit direction. And the army teaches you, give your intent, tell people what the outcome needs to be, and then let the team come back with a plan to go attack it. Second was that I learned I am better off when I don't think I'm the smartest person in the room, which I'm fortunate to very seldom have ever been in a room where I was the smartest person. But when I was a young lieutenant, I had an experience with a leader, a subordinate to me who I gave explicit directions to, and it was a total disaster. And at the end of the the exercise, I came back to this a non-commissioned officer. And we were talking and he's like, oh yeah, I knew this was going to turn out that way. And I was like, if you knew it was going to be this bad, why didn't you say something? And he said, well, sir, you never asked me. And so I learned that it would probably behoove me to ask more questions. And then third is really in the world of, I only want to make decisions that are going to get me fired. You know, I talk about this all the time. If the decision can't get me fired, I'd really like someone else to do it because they need to experience the joy and anxiety of decision-making. 
right? I spend a lot of time trying to figure out where decision rights live and then trying to push it down through the organization. And, you know, the army is quite good at that. It was a great experience for me. I learned a lot. I met a lot of people who were nothing like me. You know, I'm not always sure I made the right decision when I got out, but I'm certain I made the right decision when I joined. That's pretty uh, remarkable and inspiring. Wow. Especially for somebody who has done absolutely no service whatsoever. So thank you. Uh, Actually, service takes many forms, Sarah. I got to tell you. (laughs) You're very generous. So we're going to move into the rapid fire part of the podcast where I ask you some inane questions. You are the CEO of a breakfast cereal brand. What's your favorite cereal? Post Blueberry Morning. Ooh, good call. Good call. That brand has been called like 16 different things. It was originally called Post Morning Traditions, then it became called Post Selects, and now it's Great Grains. It's always been Blueberry Morning, but it's always had a a master brand on top of it. But that's my favorite. I actually don't know if I've ever had that one. I know a guy. Well, you know, I'm not asking for grape nuts, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, that's right. That would be selfish. Yes. (laughs) What is the last thing you bought online? A a pair of Hoka running shoes. Are you using them? I am. All right. That is pretty damn impressive. Not running though, walking, although there's now like a foot and a half of snow outside in Chicago, so I'm stuck inside. If it's this bad here in New York, I can only imagine what it's like in Chicago, but... Yeah, for sure. Rachel, you get to ask the last question. The last question, the most important... Howard, what's the bravest thing that you've ever done? I told Sarah ahead of time that that was almost an unfair question because I don't really consider myself to be particularly brave. You know, I'm fortunate to have lived in a world where the phrase bravery is sometimes a little bit more serious than elsewhere, right? Actually, I was a sophomore in high school and I joined the wrestling team. And so for context, I am the youngest, but my sisters are much older than I am. My mother is very protective, right? I wasn't allowed to play with guns as a little kid. I no cap guns, no nothing like that. I joined the army, of course. But joining the wrestling team was a three-year journey for me to decide to do because my mom, of course, didn't approve. And what was going on was uh, was more problematic for her. And I was like, I want to join. She's like, I think you'll get hurt. I'm like, I probably won't get hurt. But by then, I didn't know anybody. I was afraid of actually getting hurt. I didn't know I was a tennis player. But I walked into this room full of 50 people who were kind of in a different academic group than I was. It was a little different than uh, I had ever done before. And I walked in, it became the foundation of a lot of things I learned how to do. I suddenly learned that when I got hit, I wasn't in soul crushing pain. I didn't have to go to the ER. I was going to be fine. And I learned how to compete a little bit more physically than I had ever done before. It set up the opportunity to join the military, to go to airborne school, to basically set me on a course where I became far less afraid of facing anything. And it really was something as simple as joining the wrestling team, Kings Park High School in, I think, 1986. Wow. That's that's pretty incredible. Although I, I will argue, I think you've done an, a number of incredibly brave things in your professional career. But what I love about this question is that it brings out things about you that people don't necessarily know. And I think that's incredibly special. As I said to you, I'm like, I don't really consider myself to be a particularly brave person. Professionally, there are lots of things that we can talk about as well. But taking risk is, I think, part of the job. Like I said earlier, no one's shooting at me. I don't have to, I'm not saving any lives. I'm not doing anything particularly special with what I do professionally. And there are plenty of people out there who do confront far more difficult things in their world than, than we do. Probably Real Women of Philadelphia would probably be the one of the more brave things we did together when we first met, which was at its time, fairly cutting edge stuff with a, with a media sponsor, with a brand that everybody loved and was under leveraged. Probably the greatest email I've ever gotten was from Jim Lisinski at Google saying, I don't know what happened, but you guys got 100 million hits on the welcome video on the first day, on, which was like Good Friday, which was super cool. That was a thrilling experience. For pure bravery, I think probably joining the wrestling team might be up there for me. 
I'm glad that you're leaning on a personal one. I will say Real Women of Philadelphia trying to get people to cook with cream cheese on top of everything else was pretty inspiring. My personal favorite bravery thing that you did was sponsoring the Tempty Passover Challenge to cure the matzah fatigue. I just might have a personal bias on that one. (laughs) We are so thankful that you joined us, Howard. It's incredibly helpful and I think incredibly inspiring for many of the folks that listen to this podcast to be able to hear the view from the top. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to seeing you when we can all be together in, in person. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.